Welcome to the Ranting Rhino podcast. I'm Tim Carson, and this podcast series is from our latest men's conference at New West Community Church, where I'm the Associate Pastor of Discipleship. We are a Baptist church committed to a Reformed theology, expositional preaching, intentionally intercultural, and hold a high view of God in the scriptures. If you want to know more about New West Community Church, you can find us at newwestcommunitychurch.com. The men's conference theme was Man's Quest for Meaning, and this episode is a recording of the third session entitled Man's Quest for Adventure by Pastor Paul Dirks. Well, it has been wonderful to gather together with the men and to hear, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because on one hand, we, we love our, our wives, uh, our children. We, we miss them. We feel incomplete if they are not with us so very often. And, uh, and you know, the women's voices would add just a beautiful uh, extra layer to what we're singing. But in spite of all that, not taking anything away from that, just to hear the men's voices singing is something special. And, uh, and it has so encouraged me to hear uh, the men lift up our voices together. This morning, my task is to bring something of the the beautiful storyline, the exciting storyline of the Bible to light in order to be able to impress upon you by the Spirit of God that we are part of a great and grand adventure in this world. And that there is a day coming when the the certain perspective on that adventure that we now have will be at an end. And we will forever enjoy the rest, the delight, the victory that comes from the adventure that we now find ourselves in. I want to start, though, this morning with a bit of a story. And the story uh, revolves around two people. And you can see them on your screen, hopefully up there in front of you. Let's make sure I get the, the people right here who is on your right and who is on your left. I, I want to speak first about the person on, your le- on, your, on the left, uh, whose name is Robert Louis Stevenson. And some of you, as I say that name, may recall that he is a famous author from the 19th century, uh, and he is renowned for his popular adventure novels like Treasure Island, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and Kidnapped, and there were, there were some others as well. Um, and in spite, it's interesting, in spite of the very popular nature of his writing, he was not writing, you know, high, high level kind of fiction. It was meant for the, for the every person. These were action kind of adventure stories that he was actually in his own time greatly admired by other authors like Arthur Conan Doyle, Rudyard Kipling, Ernest Hemingway, and uh, one of my favorites, G.K. Chesterton. In fact, in 2018, um, he ranked as the 26th most translated author of all time. Now, you might think, oh, 26, that's a little ways down the list. But he ranks ahead of Rudyard Kipling, ahead of J.R.R. Tolkien, ahead of Plato, ahead of Ernest Hemingway and Oscar Wilde. He ranks, in fact, just behind someone widely recognized as one of the greatest novelists in all of English history, Charles Dickens. 
Not only did Stevenson write adventure, he attempted at least to live it. In spite of poor health most of his life, uh, and actually dying at a relatively early age, he traveled very widely throughout the world, and he spent many years in America. But later in his life, he traveled and eventually moved to the South Pacific, uh, where he lived. He's lived in Samoa with his, with his wife and family um, for, for many years at the end of his life. And it was there that he met the person on your left, a missionary. Uh, by the name of James Chalmers, all right? He's the, he's the fellow with the particularly wild appearance there. Uh, Stevenson on your right, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit more refined. Uh, and J- James Chalmers was, like Robert Louis Stevenson, born in Scotland in 1841. And he grew up in a fishing village. And he was renowned, even as a boy, for his, his adventures, some of them revolving around the sea, which, of course, the Lord would then use as he sent him out uh, to be a missionary in Papua New Guinea. And uh, one story is that he, from, a, from in an early age, as he would often spend time with the sailors and the fishermen in the villages, um, he, he, at one point, got into a, I think it was a mackerel, um, crate. And these are big crates that, that they housed fish in. And he grabbed an oar and he set out into the ocean in this mackerel crate. And he had to be rescued by sailors because he was, he got way a long ways out there. In fact, his father, uh, would one day say, you know, would, would say to him, listen, son, you, you know, you're, you're not going to die young because if it would have happened already, you, you, he was almost drowned like three or four times. And, um, but at other times he would actually rescue other boys in some of their aquatic adventures. And, and, um, because he had become a, a quite a good swimmer. Well, the Lord used uh, this, you might say this indomitable spirit of a man. Um, maybe I'll tell you one other story of his conversion, that he, uh, he came to know Christ, even though he had a, a Christian upbringing and had been in church. Uh, he had turned away from the Lord in his youth, in the years of his youth. And so when there was a kind of a, a bit of a, at least minor revival going on, there was a preacher in the local town that had been uh, hosting these meetings. He went with some of his buddies to go cause trouble at the revival meeting. And it was there that the preacher preached uh, on Revelation chapter 22, come all you who are thirsty. And, uh, and the Lord used that to save him and, uh, and sent him out. He had a very uh, clear call from a relatively early age that he was to go uh, into a, a kind of an unknown part of the world. And he eventually ended up in the South Pacific where he met Robert Louis Stevenson. Um, Chalmers would tell Stevenson about some of his life, about the fact that he had been shipwrecked. Now, let's see if we get this, get this right. Three or four times. Yeah, four times. All right. The fact that he ministered amongst dangerous cannibals. Uh, his life was threatened regularly. The fact um, that, you know, there was always tropical diseases 
both his first and his second wife uh, eventually died because of those tropical diseases. But this was a man who trained up, he won people to Christ, he trained up uh, the indigenous peoples in a kind of a martyr-minded way such that many uh, of, of those early missionaries, indigenous missionaries, gave their lives when trying to win their fellow uh, Samoans to, to the gospel, or Papua New Guineans. Uh, I think first he went to Samoa and then Papua New Guinea. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, as he heard these tales, and of course, he was a man himself of adventure and wrote about adventure, but he was simply astounded by the life of Chalmers. Um, he, he felt that here in Chalmers was one of the most remarkable adventurous spirits that he had ever met. He states, he took me fairly by storm for the most attractive, simple, brave, and interesting man in the whole Pacific. And again, this is coming from an adventure writer. What is remarkable about this meeting is not just that they were both Scotsmen finding themselves in the South Pacific together, not just that they shared this love for adventure, but the fact that Stevenson had also grown up in a Christian home, but had apostatized. He had turned away from the Lord in a very deliberate way. As far as we know, he died apart from the Lord. Uh, although there are some writings that would suggest that he retained a respect for the faith of his parents, uh, respect for the Bible. He held it in high regard, but there is very little to suggest that he ever put his personal faith in Christ. And so I bring up these, uh, these two men and this example to point out a couple of things that I want to unfold this morning. The first is that we're made for adventure. And I think in particular, as men, God has made us for adventure. And we see that adventurous spirit in both these men. But second of all, and very importantly, is the fact that not the greatest, most you know, remarkable, page-turning adventure stories can compare with the true life adventure of following Jesus Christ. An adventure that if you will lay hold of it, will redound in glory and to the glory of Christ forevermore. So what I would like us to do is to look at a couple of passages today. Um, I want to start in the very beginning and I'll ask you to turn with me to Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one. I want to start at chapter 1, verse 28, what is called the often the dominion mandate, sometimes called the cultural mandate. Um, I believe that this mandate has never been rescinded. I believe that the Great Commission is a Christ-centered global refashioning of this same mandate. All right? I believe that redemption restores creation. And that this is not something that we are free to leave or think has been superseded in some, you know, spiritual way that kind of leaves the earth to itself. Let us make man in our image. Um, 
sorry, I'm reading for verse 26 here. I'll jump down to verse 28 uh, just to focus us a little bit. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here in this very key verse, we have a sevenfold structure and a threefold structure. The sevenfold structure is very easy to, easy to see. There's seven commands here. Um, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish, have dominion over the birds, and have dominion over uh, everything that lives that, that moves on the earth. Uh, and in fact, if you look at that third aspect, the dominion, you'll see the threefold cosmic rule in, uh, that man is given. He's given uh, not only the animals, but the spheres, the spheres of the heavens, the spheres of the earth, the spheres of the seas, every, everything uh, given to man. Uh, the threefold structure, that is the last part um, of the threefold structure. But notice that the first part is be fruitful and multiply. And here you have um, what I would term the idea of lineage. Lineage. Uh, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, the second part is fill the earth and subdue it. And here we have the aspect of the land. All right. And then the last part, which we did speak about this dominion over the three spheres, uh, I would state as lordship. All right. And I believe that these three aspects, lineage, land and lordship are found in all of the covenants that we have in scripture. So you'll see that very prominently, for instance, in the covenant with Abraham. And you'll see this, I believe it's reflected in uh, as well as in the other covenants and chiefly in the new covenant that is in Christ. Lineage, land and lordship. But it's this word, uh, it's within this, uh, the idea of the land here that we see this, um, these two aspects, subdue it, oh sorry, fill the earth and subdue it. And I want to, I want us to think about this word subdue for a minute. The word subdue here is interesting in light of the fact that the fall into sin has not yet occurred. That there is something inherently good apart from sin in subduing or uh, this this aspect you could almost you could almost use the word carefully violence the idea that we are to take what is raw or wild or unfinished and we are to have a control over it that involves imposing our will to some degree. And again, it's a little bit hard for us to know exactly what that looks like apart from sin, because of course we live in a world of sin. Nevertheless, it is important that we recognize this. In fact, if you look back to Genesis chapter one, verses one to three, the very, very beginning of the scriptures, we read of some reflection of this, even in God relative to his uh, creation. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Uh, interesting. Darkness was over the face of the deep. There, as if there is some inceptionary, 
Some people have used the word chaos. I'm not sure if that's the best word, but maybe I'll use it. There's something here that's, that, that, that needs to be brought to a completion. Something that needs to be, yeah, I'll use the word again, tamed, perhaps. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, what is interesting is that uh, when you think of the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, what's what's in the waters? Well, if you look down to uh, the fourth, uh, sorry, the fifth day, Genesis chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, we see this. And, and this will become important. If you're reading the storyline of the Bible well, sometimes little ideas that first come to bear in a way that's very, very subtle can later on crop up and be quite important. So it says there that let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm. Now this word great sea creatures is the Hebrew word tanin and it means, and I, I, I think that the translators here of the ESV, I think they're, they're kind of taming this word a bit. The word tanin in many places means dragon. Sea monster. Serpent. And this is part of the storyline because... Even though the, the serpent that we find in uh, Genesis 3 is, is not called by the same word, there's connections all throughout the Bible that put together the, the serpents and the, the sea creatures like Leviathan and Rahab. And you come across some of these, some of these names. Um, and it refers to the fact that in their original created state, these sea creatures were created good. Completely good, but they're the, of all the animals in the world, of all the things that God has created, this is brought out in, in the book of Job with Leviathan, that this is the most untamable of all the beasts. And so it becomes within the, the dark waters, this great dragon becomes almost this symbol of that which stands against God and his people. And, and this, this symbolism, I don't have time to unpack it today, but it, you see this at many points in time in the scriptures. And it comes, of course, back in with a vengeance in the book of Revelation, where you have a beast that comes out of the sea. A beast that comes out of the sea. Now... We see here, even in Genesis chapter 1, that there is an adventure. We are to subdue, we are to tame, we are to use the strength that God has given us. But when you move to Genesis chapter 2, we see that uh, God sets man, Adam, within a garden. So he is to keep it and work the ground. So there's that land aspect. Uh, there's the promise in the background of lineage, but there's no helper that's fit for him. And so he can't bring, bring forth fruit for God. And so God creates the woman as this great helper for him. And uh, a couple of things we ought to note here as we consider this in light of the adventure that God gives to mankind. The first is that we actually cannot do what God has called us to do without woman. 
Okay, now I'm talking to men, but this has bearing on our, on our adventuring, on the, the purposes that God gives us in this good life. Yes, God may call a few here and there to be single, but by and large, God has said, listen, you need a woman to be able to adventure. And this is, this is important because as men, uh, I guess the second part of what I want to say is that we are to be leaders in the adventure. When you get to chapter two and you got the land there and you've got this, uh, you got the beasts that come and, and Adam is to rule and have dominion over them, that he is the lead in this and the wife comes alongside him to help him in this dominion, in this subduing, in this um, in this mandate that he has. So man is the leader, but he needs his wife. All right. So uh, I just I bring this to you because there are times that men will want to grab hold of an adventure. And sometimes even in non-spiritual ways, they want to conquer the world. They're going to work in business. They're going to they're going to do great things and build great things in their own kingdom. And they're not thinking in terms of of their home and their wife and their children. And by the time we're done, I want to mention a little bit about the fact that that too is a great adventure. And I, I know it's going to bear into what Brother Andrew too is going to say here in our next session. So we need, we need our wives. Now I want you to turn to chapter three. And in chapter three, of course, we have the fall. And what, what we see here is that this adventure that God has given us takes a dark turn. It takes a dark turn. And you know the story. I'm, I'm asking you to kind of look at it, but I'm just, I'm not going to really read through much of it here. Uh, what we see is that there is a subversion of the authority structure that God institutes. We see that the serpent, who is a beast, he takes an apple, which is part of the, the, the land and the fruit of the, of the tree and the field, and he, he comes not to Adam first, but to Eve first. And so, what we see from the perspective of man and Adam is his failure to subdue. He fails to have dominion and to subdue um, the woman, his wife, to subdue the beast, the, the snake, and to, and to keep and guard even the land, the garden. And there's a complete subversion now in that everything turns against him. And you see this in the curse that is upon Adam well, and, and, and Eve as well that in regards to Adam, even the ground is going to turn against him. It's not going to yield its fruit easily. It's not going to bow to his, to his trade and to his tools. We see that the beasts turn against him. There's enmity put between this representative beast, the serpent, and you see that borne out in, in the rest of the storyline of the Bible. That there is this great beast that comes up against mankind in the book of Revelation. The beasts turn against uh, man. And then, of course, even in a certain sense, Eve turns against man. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. The whole order is subverted because man didn't do his job. And of course, part of our job now is to recapture that creational mandate.
to rule in a way that is good and right and gentle and in keeping with God's truth. So there is this adventure that God has set us upon. Now, what I want you to note here, and now I will ask you to look at this passage. I want you to look at chapter 3, verse 15, and I want you to notice something that uh, for a long time escaped my notice. I'm, I'm pretty familiar with this passage as a pastor, but only quite recently in some of my reading, and you'll forgive me, I, I, f- I forget which author I was reading. I've been doing a lot of reading on, on covenants, and somebody pointed this out, and, I, and it's one of those moments where you thought, of course, how did I not see this before? But, you know, when we look at, ch- at verse 15, what is called the Proto-Evangelion, the, 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 the precursor of the gospel, it's the gospel in its most uh, Inceptionary form. It's is germinal form. I will put enmity between you, serpent, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And I've always focused, and yeah, I, hopefully you can agree with me that this isn't altogether wrong to focus on the fact that oh, Christ is coming. Christ is the one who's going to fulfill this and is going to is going to come and crush the head of the serpent, even though his heel will be bruised. But what I did not see until very recently was the fact that the that God placing enmity between mankind, the seed of the woman and the devil is an incredibly gracious thing. Now, maybe some of you are nodding your heads like, yeah, yeah, I. Maybe others are like, oh, tell me more about that because I don't understand either. That when Adam and Eve, I think one of our speakers last night tur- said a little bit about something like this, but they turned to be with Satan against God. They, they, they chose their side. And yet... God comes along and he says, no, you're not going to be on the side of Satan, of the serpent. In my grace, I'm actually going to insert, even though this didn't come from you, because you're loving Satan, you're siding with him, I'm going to insert some hatred between the serpent and, and, and mankind. So that you don't love Satan with all of your heart. So that you don't do, you know, dark deeds without, you know, God's grace shining upon you forevermore. All right? And if you know the doctrine of the depravity of man, the depravity of sin, you will know it's, it's framed in very careful terms. That sin affects everything that we do and even everything that we think, but it does not make us as evil as we could possibly be. Why? Because of God. God's common grace, evidenced here, injecting itself into man. And of course, in many other ways as well. So this adventure that that God gives to us now takes this dark turn where now not only are we trying to subdue and and tame what is wild and and to bring things into greater order and beauty and goodness as, as we put things together, but now we're fighting against an evil. We're fighting against the dragon. 
And if you have in your mind right now the picture of a, a knight in glistening armor, his sword in hand, running towards a great foul beast in order to best it with sword and, and blade, that's the right picture that you ought to have in mind. That story of adventure that, that we kind of, we love as, as boys growing up. But let me suggest to you that God has put that into the hearts of boys because that becomes the reality as we are men. Not because we leave that, but because it matures in this way such that we understand that we fight against not just these great mythical beasts, but we fight against Satan. And we fight against the world, this, this beast system that we find ourselves in. And we fight against our own sins, putting to death the deeds of the body that we may live. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted, right? There's martial imagery. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, who is it that wins this victory? Of course, I am making an assumption here that I want to make explicit, even if it is brief and even if I want to get to my application. And that is that the one promised in Genesis 3.15 is the one who conquers the devil and the world and sin. He alone, Jesus Christ, fully man and fully God, came to bind the strong man. He said as he headed to the cross, now is the ruler of this world cast out. He is the one who, through his victorious death, a death that didn't look much like victory, that he destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, who through fear of death held captive we who had sided with him in our sins. Jesus Christ is the captain of our salvation. He is the one who ultimately has slain the beast, but now he gives to us the task of adventuring for him. Now, this, this adventure, it's worth saying, is one that is not optional. It's not optional. If you're a Christian, you're on it. And it's going to come to you whether you think in terms of, of adventure or not. It will come to you whether you have put on your armor or not. It will come to you whether you have a clear idea uh, in your mind of who your enemy is or not. Jesus in Matthew 11 verse 12, that's a great verse. Great verse. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Well, that's interesting. Has anyone ever told you that as a man, well, not just as a man, as a Christian, that you actually have to be violent? There, there's, there's some good violence in the world. That's actually one of the reasons why the fact that, uh, you know, I, I sometimes my wife, if my boys are wrestling and, and, you know, and the dog's getting excited and maybe trying to get in on the action and, and, and biting someone and it's, yeah, it's a bit of chaos. And my wife says, ah, stop wrestling. That, that, you know, some of the time, at least some of the time I'll say, yeah, stop wrestling. Some of the time I'll say, no, they're, they're boys. They need to wrestle. 
right? Why? Because there's a kind of violence actually you desperately need. You're not getting into heaven without this kind of violence. You have to take the adventure. You have to conquer Satan. You have to conquer the world. You have to conquer your sins. I'm reminded of 1 John 2. Why don't we turn there quickly? 1 John 2. I do want to get to my application here. But in 1 John 2, because we've got some young men here. I want you to see this. This is good. Um, I'm just going to read a couple of verses. You could read the whole section here. But 1 John 2, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Consider this. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. <laughs> I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. As a young man, you have to understand how to discipline your body. How to, how to conquer various lusts of the flesh, whether it's to do with, with eating or, or the desire for, for women in marriage or, or whatever that is. And there's an early battle that comes to young men. But through Christ, you can conquer. He has given you everything you need for life and godliness. The Holy Spirit is enough for that victory. But there's an adventure you have to conquer to enter into the kingdom of God. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 21. Second Corinthians eleven twenty one, And here we see a man who even outdid James Chalmers in his adventuring life. Although whenever I hear of Chalmers and his shipwrecks, I, I can't help but think of this passage. Here, the Apostle Paul, he's, it's kind of a funny passage because he's boasting about his life. Um, but it's a certain kind of boasting. Uh, if you look down a little later to chapter 12, verse 11, uh, people were forcing him to boast about it because they were boasting in the wrong things. And in the wrong people. And that still happens today. There are, you know, there's, um, there's great, uh, great. I mean, it depends on how you look at it. But there are preachers on, uh, you know, on YouTube and, and on the TV that people go, wow, this guy's so, he's so well-spoken. And, and, uh, and, but in some cases, people are boasting about the wrong thing. What does Paul boast about? It's not the fact that he's a great orator. It's not the fact that he knows he, he knows the scriptures better than anyone. He doesn't boast in his phenomenal education at the feet of Gamaliel. What does he boast in? He boasts in this suffering adventure for Christ. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever else anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. <laughs> I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors. Here they are. Far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. 
Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And I'll just, I'll just stop there. But we often look at that. There's all sorts of things we could take from this that would be really good. And I'm not even saying this is the main thing you ought to take from this passage. But what I want to take from it right now for our purposes is the fact that that's a pretty impressive resume. That one day, this man, Paul, and of course he has already stood in a certain sense, the judgment hasn't yet come, but he has gone to be with his Lord, and he's got some things to show for what the Lord did in his life. My question to you is, when you stand before the Lord, are you going to have some things to show for this life that he's put into your hands? Are you going to have a resume of suffering adventure for the cause of Christ? Will you receive that, that laurel wreath that is, a, that is given to victors? Right? The Apostle Paul says in another place, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. All this adventure, most of it lies behind him now. I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There is an adventure, and you need to lay hold of it. Let me... Let me move into some practical application as we consider the fact that you're made for adventure and that the adventure, adventuring for Christ is far greater than any other adventure as seen in the Apostle Paul and, and in others. First of all, build spiritual muscle. Build spiritual muscle. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 4, 7-8. You may know that Paul is writing here to his young protege, who is an elder in a church in Ephesus, I believe it is. And, uh, and he is training his young, yeah, his, his young son, he calls him in another place, how to order things in the church, both for his own good, but especially through him to others. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. Now, what's the illustration of this? What's the metaphor? For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is a value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So if there's any of you that are, uh, you know, getting out and going for a, a jog every day to keep your body in good shape, if there's any of you that are doing some push-ups every day to keep, you know, keep some strength up, Maybe some of you are watching what you eat so that your body is being kept as a temple of the Holy Spirit. These things are good. 
Yeah, keep doing it. In fact, God created us as the stronger vessel between ourselves and, and, uh, and our wives. And, and some of that physical strength is part of how we bless our, our families and protect them, etc. Bodily training is of some value. But in the fight that we are in, you will need spiritual muscle. Spiritual fitness. And this means that you need to be digging into your disciplines day after day. Anybody that works out, you know that you start to get gains after a month or two of regular discipline. It's the same with your spiritual muscles. And there may be some here this morning that aren't starting your day with the Lord. There might be some that your prayer life is, you know, five minutes a day if you, if you get a chance. There might be some of you who have thought in the past, yeah, I really should be memorizing scripture, but, you know, I just, it's hard. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. But guess what? There's a big bad dragon out there that wants to eat you. There's a lion that, that wants to devour you. There's a world that needs to be subdued. Sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. So build some spiritual muscle. Build some spiritual muscle. Secondly, pursue the adventure of wife, home, children, and grandchildren. Turn with me to Psalm 127. And I hope that this serves as a uh, kind of an entrance point to maybe some of the things that our brother, uh, brother Andrew will, will be speaking on here. But it's fa- I love the language of Psalm 127 because it's adventure language in many ways. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it and labor in vain, right? We, we want to build things. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain, right? Because we're protecting things from, from evil, from people, from, you know, lions and dragons, etc. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the, in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. I love that. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Pastor Tim talked about legacy yesterday, and I want to encourage you that one of the adventures that you need to be on is this long-range goal of training up a clan of warriors. We don't, we don't tend to think in those terms, but Psalm 127 calls us to think in those terms. Yeah, we're also training up more than warriors. We're, we're training up servants. We're training up builders. We're tra- yeah, we could use lots of different metaphors, but this psalm uses the metaphor of war. When we go out to the gate, that's where, that's where you know, the elders meet and where there would be an enemy that might come in. We will be successful in that adventure if we have built our family well and that all of a sudden we've got swords around us for the battle that we have personally trained. That our homes have been headquarters in which we have taught our children how to put on armor, how to use a sword, and that there's an enemy out there. So, don't think of adventure only in, in, in terms of your vocation, or only in terms of, of sharing the gospel with those who are lost, but think of adventure in terms of your own home, what God is calling you to do. 
Thirdly, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 6. My last exhortation is do something spiritually bold. Do something spiritually bold. God calls Jeremiah to be a prophet. <laughs> Verse 5. Actually, you know, he says to Jeremiah, forgive my paraphrase. I, I, I don't think it's irreverent. But essentially, I've had my eye on you from the very beginning. You didn't know it, Jeremiah, but I, I've actually chosen you. You've got a job. I, right from the time you were born, even before that, you, you had this certain path that I knew you were going to be on. And, and uh, Jeremiah says, oh, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm a really young man. I'm only a youth. I'm only a youth. I don't know how to speak. Verse 7, don't say I'm only a youth. For all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. Wow. To pluck up and to break down. To destroy and to overthrow. To build and to plant. Jeremiah is another man who's going to have a great resume. I overthrew kingdoms, he'll be able to say. <laughs> I was able to, to pluck up and break down, but also to build and to plant for those who would come and plant after me like Daniel, like Ezra and Nehemiah. Do something spiritually bold. If you're thinking there in, in those pews, you're thinking, yeah, I, you know, I'm not sure what my life holds and, and I'm, I'm just this. No, you're not just anything. You have the same spirit of God that Jeremiah did. Do something spiritually bold. Let me make some suggestions in case you need some. Our church goes out every other week and we do street evangelism. We started doing this a couple years ago. Well, I've been so blessed by it. One of the reasons, it's not the only reason. One of the reasons I do street evangelism is because naturally I'm a coward. That's why I do it. That's one of the reasons I do it. One of the reasons I do it is because I'm scared. And I don't like that I'm scared because Christ is worth more than my feeling of... Of, of not wanting somebody to be dismayed by me or casting a, you know, a, a, an askance view at me, you know. Do something spiritually bold. Maybe God will call some of you here this very evening to go to the mission field. Do something spiritually bold. God has given you an adventure and you need to take it. Set your eyes on the one who went before you, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Let the example of those like the Apostle Paul lead you forward too. Let me uh, 
Let me read, I'll finish with this, from Leonard Ravenhill, Why Revival Tarries. He says this, Consider for a moment this man, Paul. God and Paul were on intimate terms. Revelations were granted to him. His servants were angels. At his fingertips were earthquakes. His spirit-powered words shattered the fetters from the soul of a spirit-bound girl whom men had snared as a fortune teller. In Corinth, this mighty man, Paul, drained a part of the slew of despond, and there on the devil's doorstep established a church. Later, he snatched souls from under the nose of Caesar, right from Caesar's own household. And before kings, Paul was at home, for he said, I count myself happy King Agrippa. Paul also stormed the intellectual capital of the world, Mars Hill, with resurrection truth and thereby routed the learned. While Paul lived, hell had no peace. May that be said of us. While you live, may hell have no peace. Let's pray. Lord, who can... uh, Who can live up to these things? Uh, And yet, Lord, we know that these are your promises. These are your commands. We know that you have given to us Christ and the Holy Spirit. The the Spirit and the gifts are ours, as it says in the the great hymn we sang. Uh, Lord, help us to conquer. Help us to take the adventure before us. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his glory and ours in him. Amen.